0: you're listening to media on the radio a podcast that features conversations with media professionals it was my pleasure to have todd clark on the podcast he chatted a lot about dc as a community and more so as an arts community as a big arts community
1: there are more smaller theaters per block here in dc than there is in new york
0: mm-hmm. people
1: freak out it's like how can that be
0: true he shared tons of experience, tons of stories, and tons of advice for young people that want to break into this industry.
1: Niche, skill focused particular area sometimes can be a little bit easier than being the every person. So for you know, for many years I shot, edited, networked, raised funds, did everything. I was a one man band.
0: Where I generally start is just I try and try and get a case study, you know, what their college career was like and then kind of breaking in their first jobs in the industry?
1: Well, I was at school up at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst and was part of the five college consortium of schools. So I ended up actually being really excited about and then pursuing uh, video media production courses at Hampshire College. And so I took a majority of my coursework over at at Hampshire. And there was, I don't know if you're familiar with Hampshire, but... um, it kind of became famous on Saturday Night Live when Jimmy Fallon would do kinda of like um I don't know what it was called, like bong hits from his room or something. But it was kind of uh kind of characterized in kind of a hippie way, but and it was a very innovative school. So there was really more kind of a workshop symposium setup where teachers didn't give grades. There was sort of mutual evaluations on work achieved. So it was Already, the, the the education framework was very different. And so they, their approach on video and TV and, and communications was also a little bit different. So it, it enabled a person to get really saturated with um, experiences and research on all aspects of TV production. So I remember one of the things I really loved doing was hosting um, and then being a producer for and then a director for um kind of instant talk shows, so we would have the studio at our disposal, and um, I just, I reveled in that. I just, I loved the whole process of setting it up and then creating the communication stream, and we tried to be outrageous and and fun and serious all at the same time, so I think that experience kind of galvanized my interest in being a digital storyteller.
0: I had a somewhat similar experience in college where the television studio was new, and the professors didn't want to hang around late on campus, so they basically just gave us a key to the studio. Wow! And we ha- we had kind of the run of the place, which which was both probably good and bad.
1: <laughs> yeah, just having the chance to to, to play and exp- experiment and uh, and explore that's what education should be about anyway, right? You, know, if you and if you have really nice tools to do it with, you can watch it the next day, which makes you know this field really amazing.
0: It's interesting that you say that because I think a lot of curriculum, even in before college, is moving into the direction of uh, collaboration, working in small groups, project-based, because that's really th- the type of work that most people do when they get out of college. When you were in college, did you have kind of a target beyond, you said you enjoyed hosting and producing, but did you, did you have a dream job in terms of what, where you wanted to end up? No, what I had
1: was a dream passion was extremely passionate about alternative energy and decentralized energy and being anti-nuclear. I was at a place called Seabrook, New Hampshire nuclear power plant when it was being occupied and 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 you know, this is this is kind of American history is no different today in terms of the passion in the streets for black lives matter as it was for shutting down nuclear power plants because of all kinds of, of reasoning about safety issues and civil rights and all you know all those kinds of things. But I also was convinced, in order to be taken serious, I needed to be able to be pro something. So I became an educator and a researcher and a communicator around alternative energy paths. So I, I hosted a call on radio talk show. I, you know, wrote major research papers on evacuation planning. I did a whole study about for a wind system at Hampshire College, and one of the first when people ask me what was your first you know video project, it was actually windmills of Martha's Vineyard, and most of it was because I wanted to hang out with two you know famous singers of the time, Carly Simon and James Taylor, because I had met them and and got to know them or whatever, and they had wind, windmills on their property, so I went down one summer and. That was my excuse for going to Carly Simon's ranch, was to tape her windmills. So.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. When did you, and I assume you did, find you know the power of, of media or video um, to, to kind of tell a story? And, and it se- sounds like you were very passionate, but then maybe made a shift into, into media production and a uh, uh, storyteller.
1: When I came to D.C., a close friend of mine who I had met came to me and said he was HIV positive and was really scared at that time. There was, you know, medications. Reagan was stonewalling. People were dying, starting to die by the thousands. And Floyd, uh, his name was Floyd. He was a National Honor Guard at the White House. And so he had this really interesting combination of living with this threatening illness that no one quite understood back then. And he had connections to the current political administration and whatever. And he did eventually get really sick, and he did eventually die. And it was really horrible. I, I, I got involved as his sort of primary care provider, and, and and when he did pass, I wanted to tell his story. So I produced a video called Every 18 Minutes that got all kinds of attention, and it was because there was very little work done. Floyd was black, and the friends he had around him and around me were mostly African-American, and, and a lot of the communications materials and media production work, that was being done to advocate and get people um, equipped were very race race indifferent and were not sensitive in that area, so this work was really kind of a standout piece and it got a lot of a national attention and i It, it was my sort of bridge towards doing more and more independent projects and looking for support and funding from would start off from places like the like grants and the d c Commission for the arts and the DC Humanities Council and, and then I gradually began to find a voice and a footing and clients were then now you know, uh, hiring me and that led to all kinds of work, international work and work in countries all around the world. But it began with this passion to tell Floyd's story because I didn't want him I didn't want his death. I felt at the time to go unknown to, to, to not have a reason and a purpose. and, and so yeah, so it's that personal passion they got translated into a, a career.
0: That's interesting because the difference between, you know, maybe a personal passion project versus something that's viable as a product or a client, client-based video that's going to pay the bills. I'd love to get your take on that because there's certain people that believe that, yes, you have to do the corporate video in order to be the artist that you want to be, that that funds... The, the pet project that's, that's your passion project?
1: So If someone said to me, look, I've been working in the corporate world, or I'm thinking of going to the corporate world so I can raise some money so I can pursue this passion of mine, my initial r- response would be, well, then being a producer may take a while because people get caught, unfortunately, get caught up in that corporate conveyor belt and it's really hard to break away because you start to see other rewards and expectations, and you you start getting saddled with responsibilities. Someone has to be really clear, and if they can do that, then then I really have a lot of respect for that person. Really clear early on in their career to say they really want to tell this story or provide for this kind of videos or programs or documentaries or whatever it is. And, And in order to do that, they know they have to work X number of weeks, months, or years to make it happen. That's a very disciplined person. That that's amazing. There's folks always in between. You know, for a while I I, I did what you're talking about. I, I I had a job I hated, and I paid my bills. And I I looked at my day as two days. I'd go and have a nine to five day, then I would come home and I would have a five to midnight creative day. I knew what I what I needed to do, particularly on that video, the every eighteen minutes video. I I literally had no life <laughs> because. For that, that period of time, I, I was devoting non-work to that other work, and it, it was a no-brainer for me. It just I knew I, that's what I had to do, and I had to make it happen. At a certain point, though, you get exhausted. You, you, it's hard to, to keep that dual track going. So, so a person may want to consider having some money bankrolled so they can keep themselves afloat while they pursue ideas and do all the necessary elements. The other response to the question is, there's not one job. So a person may want want to be a, an incredible DP, and just they love shooting, and they, they love that aspect of it. So having that, that niche, skill-focused particular area sometimes can be a little bit easier than being the every person. So for, you know, for many years, I shot, edited, networked, raised funds, did everything. I was a one-man band. That's different than someone who says, "Look, I just love scripting. I love writing," or someone who's like, "No, I just I love being in front of the camera. I, I just love, you know, what happens between action and cut." That's that's me.
0: With my career, I'm in that part where I'm finally I've, I've released two feature documentaries, and and it's very much like you say they're they're passion projects. You're working on it for for whatever reason. It's it's something that you can't not do. Right. And so you're you're kind of forced to do it. And I'm at the point in my career where I'm kind of taking a step back from that and looking at more freelance work but looking at it through a different lens whereas trying to make it sustainable, meaning that if I can find the right clients that want to make important content, then maybe I can scratch that itch yep. and make it a little bit more sustainable. Yeah,
1: I mean, I, that's a really, what you just described is really recognizable because it, it here's, here's a couple of advantages to it and why it's kind of logical. A, you have a body of work that you can point to because you, you, you are now competing, you know, we're all competing in some respects for, if it's on that level, clients or grants or whatever it is. So you have to have something that someone says at a grants table, I like what this guy is doing, I like what this woman is doing, I think we should fund the project and blah, blah, blah. Or a client is like, you know, we're looking for someone to, to tell our story, sell our product. Um, do whatever. I really like this person's style. I, I like, but you, but you have to have something that someone can look at and go, I get it. I get what you're about. So doing a passion project, maybe that that's a reasonable course of action because it's something that you want to be really, really proud of. And you'll put it, you, you'll put your all into it versus something where you may not feel it, you know, maybe you got paid for it, but that's going to represent less of your true creative nature.
0: That's a, I think really good advice. Can you talk a little bit about the, the the D.C. Place?
1: The D.C. Place is about ways to enjoy, volunteer, and go green. It's primarily video-based, and, and I've been able to do all kinds of great stuff uh, in the in, in over the last couple of years with, with co-hosts who have explored new restaurants. There's probably 80 different short videos up there, and I'm always looking for more content and filmmakers who are looking to have their work be seen. So if what I've described sounds interesting, I would love to hear from from people who who may have some interest in in being a part of it
0: I appreciate you doing that work because one of my pet peeves I've been in DC you know I'm not I'm not from here I've, but I've been in DC for coming on 10 years and one of my pet peeves is people that that move here that are transient and that don't think Washington DC has a community and it's just that they haven't really once you start scratching the surface a little bit, you find that it's much as much a community here as it is anywhere else,
1: even more so i mean there are there are more smaller theaters per block here in d c than there is in New York. Mm-hmm. People freak out it's like how can that be true and I, I think that we we live in a we definitely live in a political city whose priorities and values revolve around sixteen hundred Pennsylvania avenue that's wrong with that, around the Pentagon around Capitol Hill. But there's such a vibrant arts community of performance artists and dancers and visual artists, and you look at all the murals that are going up around town that's one of the things that I was committed to doing was profiling some of those amazing people. so Ancono Dofia, who did the brilliant murals that you see all around town on the sides of, of walls, the Ben's Chili Bowl stuff, Demont Picasso Pinder, who's an onstage muralist for Raheem Devon, who's out there doing amazing stuff here in D.C. This city is a vibrant arts expressive city. And um, maybe after many, many years of sitting on the DC Commission as a grants review panelist and just just knowing the individuals that are out there working hard to be recognized and, and having huge audiences, it's it's just flabbergasting to me when someone says, well, DC is more a political city than an art city. <laughs> right. I'm like, I'm dumbfounded. Like, it's so not true.
0: Right. I agree. I've been working at Arlington Independent Media for close to eight years, but I, I'm uh, about to make a transition to, to work full-time freelance, joined Tiva for the first time, and I've already, in the first month, found the forum to be amazing in the way that you're connected. I already went to one of the events and met a ton of people. Can you talk about what that means in terms of people that want to break into video or television or or the industry here and what Tiva provides?
1: The... The impetus behind the organization that began, you know, almost 30 years ago, is is the same now as it was then, and that was to offer a um, comprehensive way for people to network, to support each other, to to educate with it from within the community, um, and to recognize um, excellence and achievement. So, how does that happen? We have three things that member of Tiva would be able to take advantage of the listserv, which you're talking about, um, which is a forum online that creates an opportunity for people to ask a, a range of reasonable questions, not will you hire me tomorrow, but more like, hey, I'm looking for opportunities to see who's doing work in a particular area, um, who, who's doing what, or I have a technical issue with an, with an editing you know, program. I can't quite figure out who's figured it out. It's a really valuable element of what Tiva's all about. The second thing that Tiva does is sponsor excuse me, monthly workshops and panels Well, we'll be housed at a facility, and I would love to actually do something over at Arlington Independent Media. Yeah, that would um, be great. Which I think would be just it's a no-brainer. But at a post-production house, or a have convened a number of panels around a particular topic relevant to the industry. So here, the, the two that I recently did were a lighting panel over at Shadowstone Lighting, which is brand new to D.C. and a phenomenal um, company where we we set up interactive stations where people learned the basics of green screen technology or working with outdoor sunlight or we're setting up um, what's the best lighting to do for interview scenarios. So it was really, really popular and people got, it was a hands-on, here's how it works, let's try it out. Uh, the other panel was, uh, I convened over at Gallaudet, which has a great studio uh, on campus with the three area regional film offices. And we talked about access and permits and locations. And how does a person go about getting a permit to shoot, for instance, on Capitol Hill or around town? And the same was true in Maryland and Virginia. So those were wildly popular you know, resources where you can get a chance to meet the individuals that it might be really tough to make an appointment with or find time to meet, they're right there for an evening to explore any question a person may have. Uh, and, the, and the last thing is each year we we offer an um, evening of celebration of excellence and achievement. It's called the TIVA Peer Awards, and I'm chair of this year, again, of uh, what will be an amazing evening of celebrating excellence and achievement with a bronze, gold, or silver uh, recognition, and we, we look for submissions of all kinds of work. There's a major judging effort that takes place during the summer with 150 judges from across the region who convene around looking at all kinds of criteria of excellence and then make selections. And then the night of the, the Peer Awards, which this year we're looking at November 12th, um, people will learn what what they have been recognized in
0: receiving. Being kind of 10 years into my career and the, the community here around the f- film and video is is very collaborative, but it's also very supportive. Yep. And I see that uh, women in film and video and TiVo work, even though you can potentially see them as competitors. They work extremely well together.
1: I don't want to take all the credit for any of that, or some of the credit for none of it. But I, to me, it's a no. It's again, it's a no brainer that there are two organizations that have a respected history and offer somewhat. Um, different, but also similar uh, support. So, you know, and Melissa Howden, who's the executive director, and I are, are, are great friends, and we often testify together down at the D.C. City Council on issues because they're germane to the, to the community. So, you know, the community is represented by these, these two organizations. Cine is also in, in town, um, the Producers Guild. So there's a couple of others, but yeah, I think everyone has been where someone else has been or wants to be.
0: That's kind of a great segue to where I want to go next and and if this is might be a difficult question just because it might be a little bit too broad and trying to take technology and equipment and put that aside for a second, how do you deal with the way in which um the industry changes and it seems to change you know every five years or so
1: one of the current threads of conversation on the list of right now is someone posted a a message around a news gathering app that was being promoted. And the the headline to their email on the listserv was, you know, has it really come to this? And what the person was talking about was there's some app that's available somewhere, which the, the person who's promoting it is claiming that you, meaning, you know, anyone who's reading about this app, can become an instant journalist and show up, create, and make, and then sell news, just like the real reporters. And the person who wrote the email on the listserv was bemoaning the fact that, you know, there's nothing can replace the sensitivity and relationship building that a journalist, a real journalist who spent years in the field, has developed to know not to go into a, you know, like a, an active crime scene or an active accident or whatever, and frankly, fuck it up, because they're in the wrong place, they've overstepped their bounds, they, they don't know, really know what they're doing. Um, so you can have a fancy app that supposedly turns you into a journalist, but if you don't really know what you're doing and, and how you're telling the story, you, you're, you're not becoming a story. The, the whole point is the app doesn't make you a reporter. It's your ability to, to be able to adequately cover an event. So showing up with an app is not the same as is learning what it takes to be a reporter. I guess that that's one way to answer it.
0: Similar to that, I think there's also, um, compared to even when I came out of college, because the video on the Internet was just kind of getting started, and YouTube was just starting, because there's, you know, everyone kind of feels like they have to feed the feed the content monkey and just keep creating as much content as possible what would you say or what do you say to clients and how do you consult with them about creating a, a value added co- content versus people just feel like they have to put something on the web or something on social media that that is content
1: i think it's for you for a person in the position of being a producer director to do the due diligence to really ascertain what's who's the audience being reached and what is what do you want that audience to do and maybe it is simply to be entertained you mm-hmm. know uh, which is fine but if it's but if it's much more proactive then you're right maybe they need not just a video but maybe they need a workbook or or they follow up or they need a maybe there's there's something that has to happen, happen in tandem if it's to to accomplish a certain goal so i'm when i get when I get hired to do something, someone's really clear you know we want to get a national grant, so we need to show what we 're doing that meets the objectives of what they 're looking for in this grant, or we want to celebrate this person's life at this dinner so we ha- you know it's only going to be shown this one time, so we really want to look better <laughs> than the other videos um, that are going to be shown that night, or someone is like we need we need to tell the story of this particular person who struggled with some Issue And, and th- th- their story is going to be lost to history unless we get it somehow encapsulated and capture it. Um, so there's, there's different motives for different
0: projects. Circling back to, to the audience and to kind of the purpose of this podcast, for you, if, if you're, say, hiring somebody that's coming out of college or somebody that's gonna you're going to work with that maybe is an associate producer or someone coming up through the ranks, what qualities or what kind of um, skills are you looking for in that person?
1: the duality of being both assertive with their ideas and listening and watching when appropriate. So someone who comes in, um, who is both passionate and creative and energetic, but also willing to, you know, I'm trying to say here that, that a person who's both energetic, assertive, talented, creative, passionate, that that's, that person catches my eye if they're all those things, but they're telling me how something should happen on a project, and you know they're a production assistant. That doesn't work. That's that no one's going to want to work with them.
0: It's interesting because it is sometimes it's a difficult thing to learn. Where uh, it's a collaborative environment, it's a collaborative, you know, creative environment. But then at the same time, there is a hierarchy that's involved. So
1: there has to be. I mean. If, if, if I bring a person into a production, the day we shoot, that could be the culmination of months of conversations and back and forth and relationship building between me and that, that particular client. Um, I mean, a friendship may have even developed between me and that person. So we bring someone into that scenario who's, you know in essence, kind of brand new, and I'm hiring them to shoot or to do audio or to PA or do whatever it is. That's what I need them to do. And if, and if after the thing is done... We talk it through and say, you know, I I, I was thinking about this and thinking about that. That's why I pulled you aside and mentioned this, you know, that that person that that person is going to be rehired. Um, And I've seen it time and time again when I because I also do a lot of acting and performing as talent in front of a camera. People who are a team that really works well together is not arguing. You know, they've figured out their symbiosis. They're they figured out how to collaborate. And each person does their job and they do it really well.
0: Cool. So final question, to preface it a little bit, um, I believe that there's there's a ton of work or a ton of potential work in the D.C. metro area. What would you say, though, In the is kind of the future of the industry when you have Discovery that's moved a lot of productions outside of the city and now Travel Channel has just moved, uh, I think, to, to Kentucky? Where do you see the industry going, and, and can you make any pro- projection?
1: For every one of those facilities that are moving out, you have a place like Thundershot Studios moving in um, and lighting, you know, Shadowstone lighting, you know, coming into fruition. And the Virginia Film Office talking about how they can't keep up with productions, all the recrees, the recreations that are going on. Um, You've got organizations, you know, collaborative ventures like DC Visionaries, which I'm a part of, which, you know, has a superhero approach Mm -hmm. to finding clients and bringing in team members in really innovative ways, the, 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 loft, which is, you know, a really fascinating idea. You know, see so at the same time, yeah, you may have some of the bigger kind of more traditional players shifting ground, but you also have really visionary and enterprising entrepreneurial spirits that are integrating the city. So I think the future is around, I mean, look at, look at, you know, all, all the, the community workspace, Concepts that are that have taken flight over the last five years, you know, the WeWork and you know, you, 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 the concept of going to some place and renting part of a table <laughs> in a room full of other tables and doing your work. Those are new faces of old incubator approaches, right? Where you know businesses would set aside a you know enterprise zone or you know some kind of business zone where in one building you'd have all these kind of people existing. This is a much less clunkier, expensive way to do it. You just rent an old warehouse, rehab it, renovate it, put in a dog and a, in a trampoline. I'm just kidding. Um, but you, you create a really meaningful space that's aesthetically pleasing, and all kinds of other collaborative relationships develop. I think that's the future, is, is people really looking at and bartering, in, in to some respects, you know, skill for skill, or um, creating small teams. When we were occupying a nuclear power plant, we called it an affinity group. So people learned who is going to be the ACLU type person looking at legal stuff. Who's going to think about medical stuff? Who's going to communicate? So that principle of sort of uh, creating community, learning communities, affinity groups, collaborative you know ventures. Um, I think, to me, I think those those have exciting potential.
0: Great. Well, the future sounds bright. I appreciate you coming on the show.
1: Yeah, I really appreciate you exploring it. This is talking it through, thinking it through. You know. This is keeps the dialogue going, and and uh, so I really applaud your efforts. Uh, I'm really glad you're doing this.
0: Great, thank you very much. Media on the radio is recorded at Arlington Independent Media. For more information, visit arlingtonmedia.org. Please subscribe on iTunes to Media on the Radio, where each week it'll send the podcast directly to your phone. You don't have to do anything; it'll just send it right to you. It's so easy. A lot of people have been giving me great feedback through email and in person, and I really appreciate it. But if you can just go to the iTunes page, find Media on the Radio, and just give us four or five stars or six or how many ever, you know, that they have, whichever the top number is. And then write a little description about how Media on the Radio has changed your life and it's one of the best podcasts in life. This is Devin Gallagher, host of Media on the Radio, and thanks for listening.